So as many of you know, before I was in ministry, I was a high school English teacher and even now have this really great side gig going on as an adjunct at Bellevue University. So teaching English is something that I enjoy and, and have been doing since I graduated from college. And, and I will tell you that I try not to be a grammar Nazi. Like everybody has their, their thing where they slip up in, in speaking and in writing. I have my things. And so I, I try to stand, extend a lot of grace. I'm not a grammar Nazi. But there is one sin against the English language that I cannot tolerate. And some of you have heard this rant before. I cannot stand the misuse of the word ironic. So you guys know, some of you are old enough to know, that 90s song by Alanis Morissette called Ironic. Nothing in that song is ironic. <laughs> let, me, let me give you some of the lyrics here. It's a black fly in your Chardonnay. Like, look, that's gross, but that's not irony. It's like 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife. That's a spoon obsession, not irony. It's like rain on your wedding day. I am so sorry if that happened to you, but that's not irony. It's the free ride when you've already paid. Look, that's just bad money management, not irony. It's the good advice that you just didn't take. That sounds like pride to me. That is not irony. So, so what is irony? What is the definition? Well, in the simplest sense, irony is a gap between appearance and reality. It's a gap between what we think is true or what we believe to be true or what we perceive to be true and what is real. So sarcasm is a great example of verbal irony. Like if you see someone who's just spilled their drink on their shirt and you go, good job, that is verbal irony. There's a gap between what you're saying and what you actually mean. And so we see irony used in TV and in music and in movies and in literature all over the place. And it's usually used for humor, humorous or dramatic effect. So one of the best examples of this in kind of a modern movie is The Sixth Sense. If, you, if you've seen that movie, you know that our perception of Bruce Willis's character through the entire movie is radically different than what we find out is true at the end. If you haven't seen that movie, it's like 20 years ago, so you should go out and see it because it's a great example of irony. But if you really want to see irony, just hop on Instagram. I mean, if you really want to see irony, if you really want to see a gap between appearance and reality, just hop on Instagram. Now, I'm not hating on Instagram. I think it's rather fun, but, but that is where we go to see huge gaps between appearance and reality. Mindy once sent me this humorous article that talked about sort of the irony on Instagram. And this was the title of the article, The Three Best Instagram Filters to Hide Your Nervous Breakdown. One of those is titled, Lark. This filter desaturates reds, which will soften the bloodshot nature of your eyes, making it, the, making it perfect for sleep-deprived mothers. When you look back on these photo memories, you'll hardly be able to tell that you cried most afternoons. Any of you live in that irony? So, so why the pain to define irony? Well, two reasons. One, many of us are guilty for living deeply ironic lives. Like, we, we live with huge gaps between what is real, what appears to be real, or what we think is real, and, and what actually is real. But also, being confronted with irony is a wake-up call. Like, when we get confronted with irony, it sort of shakes us out of just 
looking at what appears to be true and causes us to reflect on what actually is true. So for those of you who are newer to First City or maybe you're just joining us for the first time, we have been in a series through the Gospel of Mark. And coming to these final two chapters, there are thick threads of irony that run throughout these entire chapters. And so this morning, I want to look at three sort of ironic aspects of the suffering and death of Jesus and how the resurrection actually reverses the irony in those cases. And so we're going to look at some irony from Scripture this morning. And here's my heart, here's my hope. But for those of you that believe in Jesus, for those of you that have faith in Christ, I hope that, that you take a look at the suffering and death and resurrection of Christ and your faith and your joy and your love and your obedience are all strengthened. For those of you here this morning that don't profess faith, maybe you're unsure or you're skeptical, again, my hope is to hold up Christ to you to show you how glorious he is and that you may put your faith and put your hope and your trust in him even this morning. So let's turn our attention to the passage here and look at some of the irony. The first is what I would call an irony of declaration. So after being condemned by the council of Jewish leaders earlier in Mark, Jesus is now brought before Pilate, who is the Roman ruler of the area. And they bring a charge. This guy claims to be king. See, they knew if they were going to take out Jesus completely, if they were going to crush the Jesus movement, they needed Rome to intervene. And the only way Rome would get involved is if there were claims that this guy was a political revolutionary trying to set himself up as king over Caesar. So they bring him before Pilate. And Pilate, curious to see if there is any truth to these charges, asks him a question. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, in the Greek, as this was originally written, this isn't actually written as a question. So the English translates as a question, but the way that it is written is a statement with an applied in question. So this is actually how Pilate asked Jesus. He said, you are the king of the Jews? So his question actually came out as a confession, as a statement. And this explains Jesus' answer, why he says, you have said so. Because here's what's happening. Pilate is asking a question, but what he's actually doing is confessing truth. Now, Pilate didn't believe in Jesus. We can be sure of that. But he is ironically, unwittingly declaring, you are the king of the Jews. You are the Messiah. And Jesus' response, you have said so, is brilliant. Because this is what Jesus is saying. Like the truth of who I am isn't dependent upon my testimony. The truth is going to come out no matter what. Even through the mouth of a skeptical, unbelieving Roman political leader, the truth is being declared, you are the king of the Jews. There is an irony of declaration here. Later, Pilate again ironically confesses who Jesus is when he brings Jesus before the crowd and says, hey, do you want me to release Jesus or Barabbas? Shall I release to you Barabbas or the king of the Jews? When the crowd says, we want Barabbas, Pilate asks, well, what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Look, Pilate is being sarcastic he doesn't really believe Jesus is king of the Jews. He's trying to annoy their religious leaders. But the effect is over and over and over again, the truth is declared. The truth hangs over this entire trial with ironic power. It's like a mark that cannot be wiped off. It's like light that cannot be dimmed. 
The truth is coming out. Jesus is the king of the Jews. No matter what appearances may say, you can't escape the truth. You can't silence the truth. You can't bury the truth. Jesus is the king. And so later when the soldiers mock and beat Jesus, they kneel and sarcastically declare, Hail, king of the Jews. And their verbal irony intensifies the irony overall. Though they're mocking, though they're scorning, though they're shaming, they're still declaring truth. God's truth is still ringing through the pages and the the eras of history. Though the appearance is, is that Jesus is just some sort of misguided wannabe king, the truth is he is the king. And that truth cannot be silenced. That truth is being declared even in the midst of the mockery. It's as if God is saying, hey, you may mock my son, but I'm going to use your mocking mouths to declare the truth of who he is. He is the king, and that truth cannot be silenced. There is an irony of declaration. And look, the same is true for us today. The same is true for us in our world today. Even though we may deny, even though we may live our lives as if Jesus isn't the king, the truth still comes out. Here's what I mean. Like, we can live for our own agendas. We can live for our own kingdoms. We can live chasing success and status and wealth and power and comforts. We can chase after political and cultural power. We can seek to define good and evil and right and wrong on our own. But even in the midst of all of that, the truth still comes out. Because guess what? Our agendas fail. Our our programs fail. The the political power that we chase after, it never delivers as promised. The, the, the The status and the success and the comforts and the wealth that you chase after, maybe it satisfies for a while, but it ultimately leaves us unfulfilled and empty it fails us. We try to establish good and evil and right and wrong on our own, but we often make things worse. Over and over and over, this failure reminds us, Jesus is king. Like even if you don't believe, the pages of history and your own experience over and over say this, not good enough, not wise enough, not strong enough, not smart enough, not satisfying enough, not fulfilling enough. Jesus alone is king. Jesus alone satisfies. Jesus alone saves. Jesus alone is powerful and wise. So in the midst of our failure, in the midst of our denial, the truth of who Jesus is is still declared. The appearance is one thing, but the reality is another. And so for those of you that put your hope in Christ this morning, here's what we need to be reminded of. No matter how dark it gets, no matter how much people want to silence the truth in our culture, it cannot be silenced. It will not be silenced. The declaration that Jesus is king will go forth. The second thread of irony here is the irony of rejection. Jesus is ultimately rejected and sentenced to death. Pilate asks if Jesus wants, or he asks if the people want Jesus or Barabbas. Barabbas is an actual murderer. He is a political revolutionary. He has stirred up trouble and he has killed. But they choose Barabbas. 
Jesus is righteous. He's loving. He's kind. He's compassionate. He stands on the side of justice and truth and goodness and righteousness. He's not a political rebel. He's not a murderer. And yet he is treated as if he is. The appearance is that Jesus is guilty and Barabbas is innocent. And is this not a picture of the gospel? Jesus, the innocent one, Jesus, the one who is not guilty, stands and takes the place of those who are guilty. Later, when the guards take Jesus to be scourged, which is beating him and lashing him almost to the point of death, they take a purple robe, which is the color of royalty, and they throw it on him. And then they take some thorns and twist it into a crown and place it on his head. A crown is meant to signify power and prestige. But this crown represents mockery and pain and scorn and humiliation and punishment. See, they've they've taken the, the vestiges of royalty and power and they've distorted them, they've corrupted them, they've demeaned them, and they've placed them on Jesus. And in that, what they are trying to do is they are trying to humiliate him. Make him be the scum of the earth, some political wannabe who isn't worthy of respect. Oh, you think you're a king? Well, let's give you the royal treatment then. And the reality, or the the appearance is, is that Jesus is sinking deeper and deeper into shame and humiliation. He's being wrung through and treated as scum. But here's the reality. Jesus is taking the full brunt of human wickedness, arrogance, and mockery, not to be defeated by it, but to defeat it. See, here's what Isaiah 53 says about the Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Like Jesus bore the full weight of shame and humiliation and sorrows and grief for us. You see, in that horrible mockery that he was experiencing from the, the, the rulers and the crowd and the soldiers, he is taking on himself all of the shame and humiliation and mockery and pain and sorrow and grief that his people would ever experience. You see, Jesus takes on physical pain and torment and humiliation, but it's not just physical. He also takes on the spiritual and the emotional shame and mockery and wounds and pain. You know those, those wounds that cut deep into our souls and leave us feeling dirty as if nothing can ever clean us, leave us feeling like outcasts as if no one could ever pull us in and we could never belong? Jesus takes all of that on himself. Look, pain and suffering and sadness and rejection and despair and affliction and evil, like these are realities of our world. The realities that come crashing in. And I wonder, when those things come crashing into your world and take up residence in your home, how do you respond? What do you do with it? Maybe you try to numb your pain Maybe you try to numb. If I just get enough success or status or wealth, it'll make the pain go away. Or maybe you try to numb through food and pleasure and sex. 
and drugs, whatever it will to make you feel that, so that pain goes away and you don't have to feel it anymore. Maybe, maybe you try to deal with it by lashing out at other people. If I can make other people hurt more than me, I won't feel so much pain. Or maybe you cry out to God. Maybe you actually cry out to God and you say, God, where are you? God, where, where are you? What have you done? Why, why, why am I experiencing this pain? Are you going to do anything about it? And when we cry out, what do we expect? Well, what's our expectation for how God is going to save us? I think if we be honest, this is what we want. God, can you just snap your fingers and make it all go away? Or God, can you just reach in and just pull me out of this so I don't have to deal with it anymore? I mean, let's be honest. Isn't this what we want God to do? But it's not what he does. Instead of snapping his fingers and making it go away, and instead of just pulling us out and completely removing us from the situation, he enters into it. Like, this is not what we would expect. This, this is not what we would maybe even ask for. This is completely counterintuitive. Jesus steps from heaven and enters into our pain, enters into our suffering. Will Willimon asks the question this way. Like, what kind, of, what, what kind of sense does it make to worship a God who, instead of rescuing us out of trouble, rescues us by entering into the trouble with us? A God who, instead of helping us to avoid pain, heals us from pain by entering the depths of our pain with us. A God who, instead of fixing things for us, addresses them by becoming weak with us in our weakness. Behold the shocking, powerful, counterintuitive love of God for you. Jesus did not hold your pain and your suffering at arm's length. He entered into it. Jesus sank beneath the weight of shame and humiliation and sorrow and despair and rejection and affliction for you. Jesus went to the bottom of that pit that you feel trapped in, the bottom of that pit that you feel others have put you in. He goes down there for you, and he bears the weight of all of that for you. In being rejected and being mocked and being shamed and being beaten, look, it appears as if Jesus lost. And all of your pain and affliction and sorrow may appear as if that is insurmountable. But the truth is, in doing all of that, Jesus is defeating it. The final thread of irony takes place in the crucifixion. Jesus is strung up on a Roman cross to die slowly and painfully from suffocation. A mocking title of king of the Jews is placed above his head because to Rome and to the Jews, look, true kings don't suffer humiliating defeats. True kings reign in power and glory. They conquer their enemies with strength and military force. Their kingdom spread through political power. And so they mock him. A humiliated man hanging on a cross is as far from a king as a sandcastle is from a marble palace. Those who walk by him mock. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. But there is a powerful irony here. 
that there is powerful irony in the cross. See, what appeared to be an inability to save himself was actually saving the ones who were mocking him. They say, hey, come off the cross so that we may believe. But Jesus stays on that cross to give them something to believe in. As Mark 15, 38 tells us, when Jesus dies, the temple curtain is torn from top to bottom. And this curtain kept people out of the innermost part of the temple. This is where the presence of God dwelt. And the curtain reminded the people, look, God is too holy, God is too pure, God is too good, God is too righteous, and you are too sinful and broken to enter into his presence. Like the curtain barred them and reminded them of their sin, but it also protected them because to enter into the presence of God as sinful people would kill them. The only time someone was allowed back there was once a year when the high priest would go and make atonement for sin. And yet when Jesus dies, this curtain, this barrier is torn down. You see, Jesus came not just to save us from the sin and brokenness around us, but the sin and brokenness within us. Jesus came not just to save us from the evil around us, but the evil within. And so on that cross, Jesus takes the full brunt of the wrath of God for us. He, he drinks the cup of God's judgment for us. Look, Jesus is forsaken by God for us. He is punished for every time you and I have rebelled in unbelief. He is punished for our wickedness. He is punished for every time you and I have demeaned and shamed and used and abused people. He is punished for every time we have hated people. Look, he is abused for our racism, our sexism, our religious hypocrisy, our self-righteous hypocrisy. He, he is punished for our sexual sin. He is punished for our lying and cheating and stealing. Jesus takes the punishment that you and I rightly deserve. And the good news of the gospel is that through the death of Christ we now have access to God. Through the death of Christ, we have now can be forgiven and we can have access to God, forgiven and cleansed of all our sin. For us in our salvation, Jesus takes all of that guilt upon himself. But in his death, that sin, that wickedness, that evil, look, they're all atoned for once and for all full and complete access to God, this means that Jesus' death was not defeat. It was victory. It was victory for you and I. And so let me ask, are you living in the irony or are you living in reality? Are you trapped in the irony of these things or are you set free by the irony of these things? Like, are you living in the appearance that there are greater truths than Jesus? Like, there is greater hope, that there is greater meaning, that there is greater purpose, that there are, are greater things that bring you joy than Jesus? Are the appearance of things defining you? Are you living in the appearance that pain and suffering and sadness and affliction and rejection and despair and injustice and evil are insurmountable? 
Are you living in the appearance that you have to deal with those things on your own? Are you living in the appearance that the only way that you're going to get out of them is by taking matters into your own hands? Are you living in the appearance that salvation happens only through your efforts? Are you living in the appearance that you can atone for your sins through your good deeds and stacking your good higher than your bad? Are you living in the appearance or are you living in the reality? Because here's the good news of the resurrection. The resurrection that we celebrate today and we celebrate every Sunday reverses the irony. You see, the resurrection reveals that reality is greater than appearance. Reality is more powerful than appearance. See, the unbelief and mocking claims of king of the Jews are undone as the true king rises in resurrection power. See, no matter the doubt that you and I have, no matter the doubt all around us, the greatest truth is still declared. The resurrection declares this truth. Jesus is king. And look, the shame and the humiliation and the mockery that we see all around us and that we experience, the, the emotional and spiritual and physical wounds that are meant to bury and destroy us and destroy Jesus, they're all overcome and undone as Jesus rises in resurrection power, renewed, restored, healed, whole. And if you are in Jesus Christ, here's the good news for you. Jesus took all of that shame and humiliation and pain and affliction into the grave. And when he came out, he left it there. There is healing in Christ because of the resurrection. And that humiliating death that he experienced, that that, that shameful death as a common criminal strung up on a Roman cross, All of that is undone in resurrection power. You see, in the resurrection of Christ, death, the final and most painful enemy of all, defeated. Sin and its curse, defeated. The debt of sin paid. The pain of evil, the power of evil, broken forever. And if you put your faith in Christ, if you trust in Christ... The good news is, is that you can be forgiven, you can be cleansed, and you can be brought into the family of God, and you can know God intimately as a father. See, in the resurrection, these ironies are reversed, and realities are more powerful. Realities are more glorious. Whatever our sin, through Jesus Christ, the righteous, we can know God We can experience his healing. We can experience the hope that he brings. We can experience the joy that he brings. See, there's one more great piece of irony here. The the centurion that comments at the end. See, in the the gospel of Mark, there's this kind of question that runs through the entire book. Who is Jesus? And right at the beginning, we're told Jesus is the son of God. And so the rest of the gospel is kind of showing that. This is what it means that Jesus is the son of God. And and we sort of see, are people going to notice this? Are people going to pick up on this? And there are key moments where Jesus's identity is, is kind of put forward. And so here we go. We run through this entire gospel, this entire narrative of the life of Jesus. And he is strung up on a Roman cross, killed as a common criminal, shamed and humiliated. And in that moment when he dies, 
the centurion declares with truth, truly this is the son of God. You want to know this is why this is ironic? Because the centurion is the last person in the world who should be saying this. You see, the centurion was a Roman pagan. He was a violent man. He, he followed the ways of Rome. He worshiped the religions of Rome. He had no idea who Jesus was. He had no concept for the Messiah. He, he wasn't living a righteous life. He wasn't following the ways of God. He was the last person in the world you would ever expect to recognize Jesus. But here in this moment, he sees the Son of God and he declares, truly, this is the Son of God. You know what this means for us? The hope that it, this is for us? This means that it's not the powerful. It's not the wise. It's not the put together and good people that Jesus saves. It's the broken. It's, it's the messed up. It's the hurting. It's those of you that say, look, I am at the end of my rope. I have nothing else. It's those of you who are done trying to save yourselves, done trying to fix things on your own than trying to work your way into God's good graces. The good news of the gospel is when we bring all that we are, all our brokenness, all our weakness, all of our sin, and we bring those things to Jesus, oh, we experience forgiveness and we're received into his family. We are loved and we are transformed and we are given hope because one day Jesus is coming back. One day, he is going to restore his people and restore his creation. See, the resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead, one day is going to raise us and transform us. The resurrection is the promise that one day, the gap between appearance and reality will forever be undone. And a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, gospel-transforming reality is all we will ever know. And so I wonder, are you living in appearance or are you living in reality? As I said, the Gospel of Mark repeatedly asks, who is Jesus Christ? And as we have so often seen, he's not who we expect. Like Jesus can't be pinned down. He, he can't be hemmed in. He, he, he can't be fit neatly into our lives to fit our agendas. Actually, he upsets our agendas. He topples our kingdoms. He messes with our expectations of what it means to follow him. But this is good. You see, he is far more powerful and far more glorious than you and I could conceive. His grace and his mercy know no bounds. He has defeated every sin and every shame and every humiliation and every affliction and every evil that you and I will ever face. And he does this so you can know life and joy and identity in him. This is the king that we follow. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. So I want to conclude by reading this quote. And I read this quote at the end of the first sermon in this series. And I thought this would be a great way to just cap our, our time in Mark and really cap our Easter Sunday. This is an excerpt from a sermon from a far greater preacher than me. Dr. S.M. Rockridge. And I just want you to listen as he describes the glorious Savior that we celebrate this Easter morning. The Bible says, my king, he's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. 
He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder if you know him. My king is a sovereign savior. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperial powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. Do you know him? He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharged debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunates. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? He's the key of knowledge the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Look, I wish I could describe him to you but he's indescribable. That's my king. He's incomprehensible, he's invincible, and he's irresistible. The heavens can't contain him, let alone some man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Look, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't hold him, and the grave could not handle him. That's my king. 